And so now there's a, a much stronger bipartisan consensus that the U.S. needs to support Taiwan in the face of Chinese aggression and, and coercion, uh, that it's in our interest to strengthen uh, unofficial relations with Taiwan, uh, and that we ultimately need to find a way to push back against Beijing's coercion. Welcome to Network 2020's audio edition of this virtual event. Be sure to check out our other events, media, and videos at network2020.org. Good, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, depending on where you are. Uh, welcome to Network 2020's discussion on tensions over Taiwan and implications for US-China relations with Dr. Karis Templeman. Um, it's a real pleasure to have him here today to talk about an issue that is um, really becoming quite um, popular in the news. And so we're, we're really hoping to dig into that tonight. For those of you who are joining us for the first time uh, and don't know what Network 2020 is, we are a New York-based nonprofit organization. We're really an inclusive international community that's trying to bridge the gap between the private sector and the foreign policy worlds. And so what we mean by that is we're trying to provide more opportunities for those who do not live and breathe foreign policy every day to really go beyond the headlines and have a better understanding of what is happening in the news, um, where they might want to put their attention, and give them just a more nuanced understanding of the way the world is operating around them. And we're, to that end, also trying to highlight um, and drive innovative research and solutions critical to impacting foreign policy challenges. So our speaker is Dr. Karis Templeman. And so um, you've probably all read his bio. We have some bullet points up here, but he really is an expert in, um, in Taiwan and, and, and Pacific Asia as well. I, one, one point that I want to just emphasize is he really understands the domestic landscape of, of politics in Taiwan and then how that relates to the larger region. So I think that um, we, we are in very good hands tonight uh, with his expertise. So, you know, what brings us together tonight, I think, is a really interesting topic in, in foreign policy, because right at the end of the Trump administration, um, uh, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo basically threw out the rule book on, on Taiwan, um, announcing that while ties with Taiwan would remain unofficial, the previous guidelines that restricted contact with Taiwanese officials were over. Um, and, you know, this is all in the middle of a move that has been uh, really seeing increasingly frosty rhetoric between Beijing and Washington and Taiwan really just sits right between that. Um, and interestingly enough, polls prior to the US election showed the Taiwanese people favoring a Trump reelection because of his overtures to the island and harder stance on Beijing. So I think it, you know, all of this makes for a very interesting talk, uh, talk tonight. So with that, Karis, if you don't mind, um, Let's set the stage. With President Biden now in office, what does the world, Taiwan, the US and China expect with his foreign policy? And you know, just to dig into that a little, has the Trump administration, as some have suggested, set a trap for President Biden in the new rules on Taiwan? Right, uh, so that's an excellent question. I just wanna thank uh, Courtney and Brian and the rest of the Network 2020 team for having me on tonight uh, before I jump into that. Um, and also, I should say, I'm coming, coming to you from the glamorous locale of my spare bedroom in San Mateo, California. So uh, I please excuse any dog barks in the background. We've got a dog who doesn't like the people walking outside. So uh, if there are interruptions, I apologize in advance. Um, uh, so uh, as uh, Courtney mentioned, the uh, Trump administration in its waning days changed uh, Taiwan policy, uh, and uh, they, uh, Secretary Pompeo announced no more restrictions on U.S.-Taiwan official interactions. Um, it's not really clear to me what this policy uh, change means, in fact. It's a little bit unclear. It's not particularly precise in the language that Pompeo used. Um, 
And uh, the practical implications of it, I think um, it's easy to exaggerate how big a change this was. There was actually a lot more, uh, I would argue, significant shifts in US policy up to this point. So including arms sales and um, uh, the sending of cabinet level officials to Taiwan, uh, increasing military to military exchanges and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, uh, the, the other part of your question was about uh, whether the Trump administration has set a trap for President Biden in ruling this out. And I've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of instant reaction to this that suggested that was the case, that this was done out of spite. You know, the Trump administration is leaving office, they have to. Pompeo is a, a very strong Trump supporter. Um, and as a consequence, uh, they did this mostly to create a headache for Biden. And while I, I don't discount the, the motive, I think uh, if you look at the actual, um, the review process that led to these changes, it, it took place over multiple years and involved multiple agencies. Uh, and um, in particular, there's a big review in the State Department about what rules and regulations uh, and norms and practices and, and codes of conduct uh, are now archaic in this new era. What, which ones should we continue to abide by and which ones should we not? And so this review dragged on so long though, like many things in the Trump administration, it was kind of, uh, dysfunctional is probably not an unfair word to use in, in kind of rolling this out, developing it. Um, and so it, it was implemented right at the end of the administration. It probably should have been pushed through much earlier if, if they wanted it to stick. Um, uh, but um, I actually think they probably did the Biden administration a favor by rolling out these changes. Uh, it actually gives the Biden administration some leverage on what uh, their new Taiwan policy will look like. Um, it's it's shifted U.S. policy and U.S. language in a direction that Beijing doesn't like. But if Biden wants to um, try to uh, stabilize U.S.-Taiwan-China relations, uh, one way to do that is to demand, to demand some concessions from the Chinese in return for potentially reimposing some of these self-imposed, I should note. These are restrictions that we put on ourselves, not that other countries have demanded of us. Uh, these restrictions over time. So I don't, it may have been attempted to be a trap, but I don't think it's ultimately hurt the Biden administration in the development of their approach to uh, Taiwan in the context of US-China relations. Okay, thanks. Um, that, that That's really helpful to know. Jin, and just to dig in a little bit on, on that, you, you were mentioning that there were some policy changes that you thought were more important that predated this one. Um, and, that, and that also, and this is you know, in conversations that we've had earlier, um, you've also said that there had been a shift in um, diplomacy towards Taiwan before President Trump took office. Um, so could you, could you talk a little bit about that? Give us, give us a sense of what the trajectory has looked like over the past years, whether it's in the Trump administration or prior, just so that we can all have a sense of um, where we are right now. Yeah, um, we can. <laughs> I don't want to go all the way back to 1979 when we uh, normalized relations with the PRC and de-recognized the Republic on China, of China on Taiwan. I should note, uh, given this audience, um, language when you're talking about Taiwan and China can be very tricky. Um, and so I, uh, when I say ROC or Republic of China, I'm referring to the formal name of the regime that now exists only on Taiwan, um, but is a, uh, in effect an exiled regime that lost the Chinese Civil War to the Communist Party and then fled across the strait in 1949. Uh, and when I say the PRC, I'm referring to the, the communist led regime with its capital in Beijing. Um, and uh, Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the shift um, that I would argue is most important is that in 2016, Taiwan elected a new president. Tsai Ing-wen is her name. Uh, and uh, her election uh, was a significant repudiation of the approach the cross-strait relations approach of the previous president, Ma Yingzhou, of the, the KMT or Kuomintang. Tsai Ing-wen is of the Democratic Progressive Party, and the Democratic Progressive Party is much more skeptical of closer ties with Beijing than uh, the KMT and Ma Yingzhou were. Um, and so when Tsai Ing-wen was elected, that was in effect a kind of 
a blow to Beijing's interests in Taiwan. They wanted to see a China-friendly candidate win, the China-friendly candidate lost. Um, and as a result, they laid down a pretty high bar that they wanted Tsai Ing-wen to meet uh, in order to continue the kind of friendly relations that Taipei and Beijing had had before 2016. Uh, and their, their bottom line was that they wanted Tsai Ing-wen to endorse a, a version of a one China principle. That is the idea that Taiwan and mainland China are both part of China and that the two sides should uh, have a responsibility to work together to seek eventual unification. Um, and Tsai Ing-wen, uh, given who supported her in the election, the party that she came from, uh, that was a politically impossible uh, ask from Beijing. Um, it was a, a much too high hurdle for her to clear. Uh, but in her inauguration speech, she did make some fairly conciliatory language. Uh, she acknowledged that the name of the country is the Republic of China, not Taiwan. Um, uh, she endorsed the constitution of the Republic of China, which actually includes within it uh, some part of a one China principle. Um, but she didn't use the exact language that Beijing wanted her to use. Uh, and so as a result, uh, Beijing said, not good enough. You haven't said what we need you to say in order to continue uh, cordial relations. And so then, starting from that day, May 20th, 2016, Beijing has rolled out a, a pretty um, a pretty comprehensive pressure campaign against Tsai Ing-wen and the DPP um, as long as they are in power in Taiwan. And that includes some economic dimensions, some diplomatic dimensions, and um, some uh, military aspects as well. And, and she and she was recently reelected, right? So yeah. given your understanding of domestic politics, what does this say to you about the pressure campaign from Beijing and what that means and how that's landing? Um, yeah, I, I guess I shouldn't say Taiwan, I should say ROC. Yeah, I mean, you can say Taiwan. It's, um, uh, that's the clearest, I think, for the, for the lay person to describe the, uh, the, the, the government on Taiwan. Um, so Tsai Ing-wen was re-elected just about a year ago at this time, uh, and she won by an even larger margin than she had won in 2016. Um, and so Beijing's pressure campaign backfired, I would say. It's, it's hard to draw any other conclusion from the results of that election. Um, and so uh, they, Beijing basically spent a lot of, uh, used up a lot of the tools in their toolkit to try to pressure Taiwan and didn't have anything to show for it after the 2020 election. Um, and not only that, but Beijing's uh, pressure on Taiwan increased sympathy in the United States for Tsai Ing-wen and Taiwan in general. And so now there's a, a much stronger bipartisan consensus that the US needs to support Taiwan in the face of Chinese aggression and, and coercion, uh, that it's in our interest to strengthen uh, unofficial relations with Taiwan. Uh, and that we ultimately need to find a way to push back against Beijing's coercion. And all of these things were, um, those would have been controversial statements in 2016 before Tsai Ing-wen was elected. Um, and so we're in a different world now where Taiwan elicits, Taiwan is one of the few issues around in, in American politics that elicits broad, almost universal bipartisan support in Congress and in the administration. And how much of that, and I know I, I have I have some other questions that I want to ask, but but how much of that is a function of the US-Taiwan relation and how much is that a function of US-China relations? How much is Taiwan just getting caught in the middle here? Yeah, um, part of it certainly is due to the decline in US-China relations and the, the rising tensions basically from the day that uh, Donald Trump took office in 2017. Um, Taiwan has traditionally had this, this role in US-China relations as, uh, at least some people in the US see it as a, a kind of useful tool to pick at Beijing. So if we, if we don't like what Beijing is doing, we, uh, we do something friendly to uh, indicate our support for Taiwan and that irritates Beijing. And so we're, we're basically kind of poking the bear. Um, I actually think that's not most of the story here. The Trump administration, uh, when it came into office, 
uh, very quickly, uh, Trump as a president-elect took a phone call from Tsai Ing-wen. That really upset Beijing. But once he came into office, he actually settled down and uh, tried to develop a personal rapport with Xi Jinping and tried to basically look for a way to cut a deal with the Chinese. Uh, and from his perspective, then Taiwan went from being this nice customer that was buying US arms to this is a problem that could potentially get in the middle of my attempt to, to develop a rapport with Xi Jinping. So um, I, I actually think the, the US hand and, the, and US sympathy for Taiwan was forced much more by Beijing's actions uh, ever since Tsai Ing-wen was elected than by any kind of deliberate attempt by Trump to support Taiwan. Uh, Trump personally, note that his administration had I would say multiple uh, approaches to Taiwan and China policy, uh, but Trump himself, I don't, there's even a, a quote in John Bolton's book about Trump saying, China is the size of this desk, Taiwan is you know, the end of my pen, uh, that's their relative importance. And so Trump himself didn't seem to put a whole lot of stock in the US-Taiwan relationship um, for its own, uh, its own good, its own purpose. Okay, great. Th th thank you for that clarification. So, um, you know, s sticking on some of the, the actions that Beijing has taken throughout January and into February, China has flown military aircraft into Taiwanese airspace, breaching international law, I believe. Um, so what what is going on here? What What is your read on this situation? How, how much of a threat is it? Um, and it, uh, wh where do you think it goes from here? Yeah, um, so uh, short answer is, uh, I think Beijing is out of ideas. Uh, this is kind of the, the final step in what, what is a losing strategy, an attempt to pressure Taiwan that really hasn't paid off. And so they've pulled most of the other levers they can pull that aren't really dangerous. And they're left with uh, some air flights into Taiwan's ADIS. Um, I should clarify a couple of things. Uh, one is that, uh, the flights that Beijing has been sending into Taiwan's uh, air defense identification zone are not actually illegal under international law. Um, their uh, ADISs in, um, have no basis in international law. They're kind of, a lot of countries have unilaterally declared them, uh, but um, the respect for Taiwan's ADIS that uh, Beijing previously showed was uh, just a norm. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a written agreement between the two sides. And so it's another tool that Beijing can use to indicate its displeasure with the Taiwan side without deliberately tearing up a treaty or an agreement or otherwise uh, violating some kind of promises they previously made. But it is, uh, it is a hostile action. It's intimidating. They're doing things that uh, challenge Taiwan's uh, own sense of security that that forced the Republic of China to send up uh, the Republic of China Air Force to send up uh, planes to uh, to track to engage uh, the intruding aircraft. Uh, the operational pace of these incursions um, is actually quite high over the last year. So there have been uh, several dozen different flights on different days that have entered uh, the Taiwanese air dis, ADIS. Um, and so as a result, uh, it does create this sense that Taiwan is under greater pressure now from Beijing. Although that, that sense is in part created just by announcing, uh, by the frequency and pace of announcements about pressure. Okay, thank you. Um, I see some questions coming in the Q&A box, which is terrific. So we'll get to those pretty soon. Um, just, uh, I just wanted to turn to the domestic situation a little bit. So. Um, what are you hearing people saying regarding this, and, and I guess it, I shouldn't call it a recent informal policy shift because it's, you know, it's something that it sounds like it has been going on for years, but what are you hearing on the ground from people regarding the, the, the changes that they're hearing from DC, um, as well as what's happening with these, with these flights that you mentioned? How, how is that affecting domestic affairs in Taiwan? Yeah, um, so there's a lot I could say here. Um, let me focus on a couple of things. One is, um, as you noted earlier, the majority of Taiwanese were actually rooting for uh, Donald Trump to be reelected as president. Uh, Trump um, probably, uh, it, Taiwan is one of the few places in the world that had a very positive impression of the Trump administration. Uh, and that was mostly because they saw his administration as 
uh, being willing to challenge China and being willing to push uh, measures that no previous administration or, or an administration in recent memory uh, would push. Uh, so sending a cabinet level official, they sent Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary to Taiwan. Um, that hadn't happened in, um, oh gosh, uh, there was a, another cabinet level official in 2014. It was a much shorter, quieter visit, but uh, it was a high profile kind of in your face gesture to Beijing to do that. Um, Another gesture the Trump administration made was arms sales to Taiwan. They sold, they announced a package of 66 F-16 Vs, uh, which prior to 2016, um, most of the people in my circles expected that would have triggered a huge blowback from Beijing if we had announced that. But by the time the Trump administration announced that sale, relations between Beijing and Washington were so bad that they couldn't really object in a, in a way that would dissuade the Trump administration from, from going ahead with that sale. So Taiwanese generally saw Trump as, as having Taiwan's back, even despite the kind of internal uh, differences of opinion and despite Trump himself apparently not caring a whole lot about Taiwan. Um, so there was some disappointment in Taiwan when Trump lost um, and a fair amount of nervousness, even among people within the Tsai administration about what a Biden policy towards Taiwan would look like. Um, now that we've had over a month of the Biden administration, we've seen who he's put in place in top positions. Um, the, a lot of that nervousness I think has dissipated and there's a lot more confidence that Biden actually is not going to be kind of a repeat of the um, standard practice in the Obama administration towards Taiwan, which was to, to view it as kind of an adjunct of China policy, something to be managed, but put off to the side and to focus on the US-China relationship as the, the, main, uh, the main core. And just, you know, Taiwan, don't be the squeaky wheel, don't be the, the problem uh, and, and things will be fine. The Biden administration so far has, uh, I think even surprised me a little bit in the language and the gestures they've made to uh, indicate continuing support for Taiwan. So uh, a, a nice symbolic gesture was inviting the Taiwanese de facto ambassador to the US to Biden's inauguration. In the past, that uh, the person in that role had gone to the inauguration, but as a guest of a member of Congress. And this time around for the first time, uh, she was able to go as a formal invitee of uh, the incoming administration. And so that was actually, a, I think, a powerful signal that this administration was not going to be like uh, Obama terms one or two on Taiwan issues. Okay, terrific. Yeah, th thank you. I was, I was going to ask for, for some examples as to why, because I know sometimes it can take a little bit of time for policy to get up to speed when the transition, Very when much, the administration yeah. transition, but, but that's a good indicator. Um, so I'm, gonna, I'm going to start taking some questions from the Q&A box. Um, and if you have any questions, please do put them in there. Um, we have one question uh, from Scott um, Godden, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his, his name. Um, and he asked, can you speak to the significant role of Taiwan high-tech investment based in China and how that plays into the trilateral relationship? Yeah. Um, so I, this is an area where I, I don't know a whole lot. I'm not an expert in, uh, in the Taiwanese high-tech industry, um, Taiwanese, uh, particularly silicon manufacturing, semiconductor manufacturing. Um, but what I can say is that, uh, the uh, TSMC, so the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, is now uh, by far the leading uh, manufacturer of the latest generation of chips that are used in uh, most advanced technology being built today. And so it's a critical supplier both to uh, People's Republic of China and to the United States, to companies in both places. Um, and so there's a bit of a uh, there's a bit of a kind of shadow tug of war over uh, access to TSMC's products. Um, and the Trump administration uh, was trying to advance restrictions on the use of technology that would appear in American products uh, from 
uh, from being exported also to mainland China. And so the, the yeah, one example of this is restriction on, on 5G technology and, and the use of, of Chinese built 5G technology in the United States. We wanted to source everything from non-Chinese supply chains for any kind of advanced technology uh, in, in building that network. And um, so TSMC is actually, uh, the other part of the, the story here is that TSMC uh, is manufacturing chips at a size that, uh, if I understand it right, no other company in the world has actually made this, this leap to, I think it's, it's five nanometers now. Um, so Intel, for instance, has long been a major competitor of TSMC. Intel has really struggled to make that leap. And so TSMC has gathered a lot of business, a lot of orders from companies that uh, used to go to Intel for their, for their chips. Uh, and so TSMC's stock price, the, the sales, the, the, and the strategic importance of that company have just soared over the last couple of years, um, which frankly gives uh, both the United States and China another reason to, to pay close attention to Taiwan and to worry about um, moves that might upset the cross-strait balance and threaten Taiwan's security. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, we have a uh, question from Joanna Vostrowski who asks, China has pressured a number of countries to reverse their recognition of Taiwan. Do you think this trend is likely to continue and will Taiwan take more proactive measures to prevent these changes from happening? Yeah, well, so Taiwan does everything it can to keep countries from flipping diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing. Um, unfortunately, Taiwan is uh, compared to China, compared to the People's Republic of China, is a, a small player. Uh, Beijing has a huge economy that it runs, um, and it can offer access to its economy and also significant, uh, significant grants uh, in exchange for switching diplomatic recognition. So the switches have been almost all in one direction over the last two decades. Um, in fact, uh, a key piece of Beijing's pressure campaign against Tsai Ing-wen has been to flip a bunch of Taiwan's remaining formal diplomatic allies. So when she came into office, Taiwan had 23. They're now down to 15. Um, and uh, several of the countries that have switched diplomatic recognition um, have been pretty strategically important ones. There's a couple in the Pacific that the United States actually openly publicly and actively discouraged from flipping recognition to the People's Republic of China. And then they went ahead and did it anyway. Uh, Solomon Islands is one. Um, there's a big tug of war in, in domestic internal politics there about whether to switch to Beijing or to stick with Taipei. Uh, and the pro-Beijing folks won out in that struggle. Um, so ultimately it's not really up to Taipei anymore. They can't uh, they can't outcompete Beijing in this kind of dollar diplomacy struggle that they've been engaged in for years and years and years. And um, the, increasingly, it looks like they may end up down in single digits uh, if this continues. There, there are several other countries that could be, I think, induced to switch recognition. Uh, and then the question is, well, you know, should Taipei even try to play this game anymore? It's uh, how much do you get with official diplomatic recognition that you don't get otherwise? And uh, the United States position on this is that Taiwan should be allowed to interact with any bodies that do not require statehood as a, a precondition for membership. And I think that's probably the way that Taiwan is headed, that they're going to, US will probably push for access for Taiwan into other bodies, such as uh, the World Health Assembly as an observer, for instance, um, or the, or ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. Um, Taiwan actually had observer status in both of those organizations until 2016, when as part of the pressure campaign, Beijing threw its weight around and, and got other members to vote Taiwan out, not to allow them back in. So, um, so Taiwan has become a little bit of a pawn in this larger struggle between the US and China to influence international organizations. Uh, and when Taiwan, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a struggle, frankly, that the United States is mostly losing right now. We don't have enough clout in these organizations to uh, single-handedly um, tip the scales enough to, to keep Taiwan in them. Um, and it, 
Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Great. Well, well, well in, in some respects, staying on that, uh, we have a question from an anonymous attendee who says, and and, and I can't verify this, um, but uh, but he's or he or she writes that the German Minister of Defense once said that eventually China will control all the advanced military armaments that the US is selling to Taiwan. And he said that Taiwan is like the prodigal son and will be welcomed back into China with massive economic incentives. What do you think? Where is this all headed? Yeah, um, so, so one is about kind of predicting the long-term trajectory. One part of this question is about predicting the long-term trajectory of, of China-Taiwan and US-China-Taiwan relations. Um, China is rising in stature, clout, hard power, all of the things that really allow you to influence international relations. On the US, uh, <laughs> I mean, if you believe, I've got a copy of the latest foreign affairs here, uh, a lot of people writing for this seem to think the US is in a significant decline or at least relative decline right now. Um, and if those trends continue, then yeah, I think the pessimistic view is right, that Taiwan is going to have a really hard time holding out against this behemoth across the strait. Um, the, the issue about advanced military technology. So the United States actually has not provided the most advanced military technology that we have to Taiwan generally. And part of the reason is concern that some of it could end up in, in PRC hands. Um, and so I, um, the, the bigger issue is that Taiwan is strategically located in the Western Pacific. And if uh, the PLA were to control the island of Taiwan, that would actually give them a geographic advantage that they don't have right now. Right now they're, they're kind of hemmed in by the first island chain. And so uh, keeping Taiwan out of PLA hands is actually a, a significant strategic objective for uh, the United States and uh, more importantly for our allies and partners in the region. Um, so for instance, if Taiwan uh, became a, a part of the PRC, Japan would be very concerned about the security implications of that. And so um, I, I could you know, elaborate a bit more on this question, but I want to leave time for other stuff. Um, so let me- well, I mean, if, if you want to, you can. That's a, I think there's, there, there's time. So uh, if, you, if you want to dig in a little bit more- Well, I guess, really so the, the other piece of this is uh, whether you really think China is, is inexorably rising and will replace the US, if not globally, then at least in the Western Pacific as the pre, predominant power. Um, and, I think that's an open question right now. I wouldn't actually bet on China doing that. China has a lot of uh, internal domestic challenges that are going to come to a head within the next decades. Uh, a big one is slowing or even negative productivity growth over the last decade. Uh, so their economy is growing, but mostly because there's more and more inputs going into the economy. They're not using those inputs more efficiently. Um, and it's not clear to me that they can make a transition to kind of a mid, middle income or high income country that uh, uh, experiences growth based mostly on, on increases in productivity. Um, I would note that uh, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan have also gone through this transition. They've, China is following a very similar economic developmental trajectory, uh, but Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea have done it in, in a way that's a bit more impressive. For one, they don't have the huge inequality that China has. Uh, and for two, uh, they're, you know, at the level that China is at now, they were actually growing at, at similar rates or even a little bit quicker and their productivity growth was higher. Uh, and three, uh, the political regimes in all three of those cases uh, were quite a bit more liberal than China is today. And in, in the Taiwanese and South Korean case, they transitioned uh, to democracy and so, when the economy slowed down in both of those countries, there was an, a political outlet for people who were unhappy with an economic downturn. You just vote the incumbents out of office. China, right now, their system does not have that kind of, that, uh, that pressure outlet. You know, there's no way to, to, to throw the bums out if you're unhappy with the way things are going. Uh, and so that, over the long run, I think is a major problem for China's um, political stability. You know, they're, they're, they have, they've developed over 40 years and they've never experienced a severe recession. What happens if they do? Uh, what are the political implications of that? And so I, I, I tend to think um, over the long run, I, I'm not gonna bet on China taking over Taiwan. Let me, let me 
put that as okay well. all right thank you <laughs> good good to know and actually and you bring up a, a great point and, and you're not the first because we have had a lot of talks on China over the past year and we had one in January with Stefan Selig who used to be at Commerce under the Obama administration and he he mentioned that the he, he really dug into a bit on that, on the middle income trap and, and, yeah. and what, what that impact might be. And so, and that is on our website too, for anyone who is interested in, um, in checking out that conversation, because I thought it was, it's a very interesting point. And that's sort of where I think it's, it's a big, it's a big, what if. Um, so staying, and, and I know this is, you know, I know you're a t Taiwan domestic politics, but we have a question from Mark Stanfield who asks, what do you envision as the U.S. largest foreign policy obstacles in the Indo-Pacific region with respect to a Chinese threat? And what do you think will be effective ways of working around or through those challenges? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I mean, take you could take a piece <laughs> if you wish. Um, with respect to China, well, China is obviously the biggest challenge for the U.S. and the Western Pacific. Um, uh, Chinese interests being what they are, uh, they would like to expand their influence. They'd like to weaken the U.S. alliance system in the Western Pacific. Uh, and conversely, we'd like to maintain it. Um, the, that system has served us very well for the last 70 years. Um, and uh, as long as it's not too costly for us, I think it, it makes strategic sense for us to, to reinvest in, in those alliances and partnerships. Um, I actually think the biggest challenge for us uh, over the long run is uh, a lot of people raise the military balance and the, the fact that we could not uh, operate with ease near Taiwan if there were a military conflict over Taiwan. The PRC has made it very, very challenging for us to move quickly into that space um, to respond to, a, say, a military attack against Taiwan. Um, but I actually think that's not the biggest concern. The biggest concern over the long run is that China has the most economic clout in the region. It's the largest trading partner of all our allies. Um, our economic footprint, our, our, uh, our impact on all the countries in the region is now less than China's. And so the simple fact that if you don't have good relations with China, you might not be able to access the Chinese market or you might not get preferential treatment um, in the past, they could say, well, who cares? You know, Taiwan didn't trade with China, but they could trade with the US, right? And that was a much bigger prize. Now, the, the scales have tilted so much that we're not in a position to kind of dictate economic terms to the rest of the region. Uh, and given, um, you know, the size of the US, the growth of our economy, we're not going to disappear anytime soon, but we're not ever going to kind of replace or return to the, the level of economic dominance that we had, say, in the 60s. Um, and so that means we're, uh, we're going to need to coordinate with other countries in the region if we want to create a kind of economic regime that uh, works to our own interests. And it's going to be much harder than simply laying the terms of the, the deal out on the table and telling everybody else to get on board. You know, um, a good example of this is the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations, where we were kind of the outlier and the rest of the countries uh, could more or less come to a deal quickly once we pulled out of that. Now we're outside it. If we want to get back in, we're going to have to make a bunch of concessions uh, to uh, you know, the other 11 members of that group. Um, I think we should get back in, and I think we should bring Taiwan and South Korea back into that as well. Um, uh, because it's in our, our own long run economic interest to do so, but that will also have a strategic impact on the region. So, um, so I actually think, yeah, to, to, the short answer is the economic challenge is, is bigger, I think, than the, the military one. Yeah, fantastic answer. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from George Pike who asks, uh, the idea of Taiwanese independence seems to have gone dormant to outside observers. Is there any life to it in their domestic politics? Is it not of interest or is the population essentially pragmatic? Wow, um, so I disagree that it's gone dormant. Uh, if you look at public opinion polls, uh, the younger you are, the more likely you are to favor independence. Um, the, the subtle difference between the old independence activists and the new in Taiwan is that uh, the new generation, the younger generation is generally more pragmatic. They don't advocate for an outright de jure declaration of independence. Um, and 
Uh, but if you ask them, do you identify as Taiwanese or Chinese or both, uh, over 80% of the 20 to 29 age group now identifies solely as Taiwanese, right? It's, and as you get generational replacement, the numbers keep going up. And so Taiwan is headed to a position in 20 or 30 years where you know, above 90% of the population is going to say, I'm just Taiwanese, you know, I'm not Chinese. Um, so I think over the long run, there is a rising tide of Taiwanese, I, I, I hesitate to call it nationalism, but certainly identification uh, as exclusively Taiwanese, as a different people then, with different experiences then, and different interests than the people on the other side of the strait who call themselves Chinese. Thank you. Um, question from Samson Ellis from Bloomberg News, um, who writes, Tsai Ing-wen has removed restrictions on, US, on imports of U.S. pork, one of D.C.'s main stated obstacles to a bilateral trade agreement. How likely is it that the U.S. and Taiwan will sign an FTA in the next two to three years as a form of legacy for Tsai? And how impactful would you see um, such a free trade agreement being for U.S.-Taiwan trade beyond delivering a strong signal of political support? Yeah, um, great question, Samson. Um, if I wish I knew the answer to this. Um, so for those in the audience who don't know, uh, a big sticking point in US-Taiwan uh, conversations over the last God, 15 years has been uh, Taiwanese restrictions on the import of US meat products. And the Taiwanese have banned meat uh, that is, uh, uh, produced from cows or pigs that have been fed the, the additive ractopamine. Ractopamine is a meat, uh, a lean meat drug. Um, and uh, the United States allows the consumption of meat that's been fed ractopamine. Taiwan did not for a long time. Uh, and the US position was there's no scientific basis for this ban. Taiwan needs to import uh, pork and beef from the US uh, for us. They need to agree to that as kind of a down payment on any conversations about other issues in the bilateral uh, trade conversation. Um, Tsai Ing-wen uh, last August really went out on a limb and committed a lot of political capital to lifting the ban on US pork imports containing raptopamine. Uh, that was a very brave move on her part because it was very politically unpopular in Taiwan and still is. And she's facing a lot of blowback from uh, activists and from the opposition. Um, the hope, I think, the, the strategic calculation on her part was uh, she had just been reelected. She could take this issue off the table if she made that move then. Uh, and as a consequence, um, that would uh, create a much more favorable environment for conversations about a deeper bilateral trade agreement. Um, so uh, I think it was the right move for her and for Taiwan's own interests. Um, my hope, and I don't have good inside knowledge about what the Biden administration will do, but I hope that they reciprocate this move because she really did put a lot of political capital into this move uh, and it's a move that is, is intended for one audience only, and that's uh, trade negotiators in the US. Um, the, what I fear a little bit is the, the Biden administration has talked about kind of crafting a new kind of trade agreement, um, that we're not gonna go back to the NAFTA era. Uh, the Democratic Party has a, a new vision of what they want to include in trade deals. Uh, and uh, so either trade is going to be on the back burner or there's going to be a lot of new demands in any kind of U.S.-Taiwan trade negotiation that the Taiwanese are not used to talking about. Uh, and so it may be complicated, even if there's a lot of political will on both sides to strike an agreement, to actually come to, uh, come to agreed terms on what that agreement would include. Um, final bit, I think it would be really impactful in the long run. Taiwan's own economic security depends on being better integrated with the US, but also the other countries in the region. Um, beyond a bilateral trade agreement, I think that sets the stage then for uh, conversations about uh, Taiwan, South Korea, and the US entering the CPTPP. Um, and if the US enters those negotiations, uh, my hope is that they would bring Taiwan along. Uh, and if they U.S. and Taiwan already have a bilateral trade agreement that improves the chances that uh, the U.S. could bring Taiwan along into the, the larger agreement. Uh, 
Sticking on agreements a little bit, um, we have a question from VOA Mandarin reporter Tina Chung who asks, do you think there will be opportunities for US having Taiwan in some kind of formal coalition on supply chain security as some media have reported after President Biden signed the executive order yesterday to do so? Yeah, um, I don't see why not. Uh, there's certainly interest in the, the Tsai administration in those conversations. Uh, and I think if it's a priority of the Biden administration, they've obviously, you know, one of the, the let me tie this back to Beijing's policy towards Taiwan since 2016. One of the, the, the kind of unintended consequences of squeezing Taiwan is that now if the US does these kind of pragmatic practical deals with Taiwan, Beijing doesn't have a whole lot of tools that it can use to deter those kinds of agreements or to object in a way that would really punish the US side. And so there's a much more, um, there's much more space to engage in those kinds of conversations without having to worry about uh, what Beijing might do to hurt Taiwan if they, if they have these talks. Beijing's already done a lot. Um, so how much worse can it get? You know? So that's, I think, uh, I think at least the strategic environment right now is very favorable to those kinds of conversations. I could well see Taiwan being included in some kind of formal coalition on supply chain management. Thank you. Um, we have a question, um, uh, Joanna asks, um, many Hong are moving to Taiwan. What impact will this have on Taipei? Yeah, um, so Hong Kong immigration to Taiwan, there's um, the, the number I've seen was a little over 10,000 former Hong Kong residents have now established residency in Taiwan over the last year. Um, uh, by Taiwan standards, that's a pretty significant number of immigrants. Um, it's still very small relative to the, the total population. And so there was some speculation when the initial crackdown in Hong Kong happened that you could see, you know, hundreds of thousands of Hong Kongers ending up in Taiwan and potentially shifting the whole demographic makeup of Taiwan as a result. Um, so far, at least, we haven't seen numbers on that level. Um, the, um, the other point I'll make about this is Hong Kong's, um, Hong Kong is a very tricky issue for the Tsai administration, um, in part because there's domestic uh, constituencies who really want to see uh, openness to Hong Kong refugees. The DPP has some kind of ideological sympathies with the protesters in Hong Kong who may be threatened by the crackdown. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of kind of pulling at heartstrings that, um, put some pressure on the Tsai administration to be accommodating. But uh, if Tsai Ing-wen is trying to find ways uh, uh, to subvert the Beijing crackdown in Hong Kong, that may be seen as a security threat by uh, the PRC. And she's been uh, very, very careful in her public language not to play into Beijing's narrative that uh, the protesters are linked to this, this black hand from abroad or in Taiwan and that the DPP is the source of all of the trouble in Hong Kong. And um, so, uh, so that, that means that the, at least publicly they're, they're, they're trying to hedge or trying to be very careful in how supportive they are of Hong Kong protesters and, and potential refugees. Um, the third piece is that if that number goes up significantly, there's you know, the DPP does have a strong nativist component to its political base. You know, people who see themselves as exclusively Taiwanese, you get a big influx of, of refugees from Hong Kong who don't speak Taiyu, they don't speak the, the native Taiwanese uh, language, um, then that changes the ethnic makeup of Taiwan as well from that perspective. And that, uh, there may be some uh, kind of hardcore Taiwanese nationalists who view that as a threat as well. Um, and so, uh, there, there's some some interesting cross currents that you wouldn't expect uh, if you're looking, you know, at the hundred thousand foot level at this issue that uh, are making the current administration much more reticent, I think, to speak publicly in support of the Hong Kong uh, pro democracy advocates. And th thanks. And, and st sticking on Hong Kong for a little bit, we have a question from Amy Hyatt who asks, "What role do you think Beijing's heavy hand in Hong Kong had on Tsai's re-election?" 
Yeah, great question. Um, I think it played a pretty big role. Um, I, I don't know that it was decisive, but it certainly, it shifted the ground of the campaign in a way that uh, was particularly beneficial to Tsai given who she was running against. So her major opponent was uh, a man named Han Guoyu, uh, who was from a mainland Chinese family, grew up in a veterans village in Taiwan. Um, and uh, more, than, more so than his, his kind of sub-ethnic background though, his language was very populist and he had won a kind of upset victory in Kaohsiung in 2018 for, for the mayor's race there. Uh, and then his language challenging the Thai administration, um, he, he wanted to focus mostly on uh, kind of standard of living issues, quality of life issues and, and concern that uh, the elites in Taipei, um, mostly but not exclusively the DPP, were kind of stealing from the people. He represented the people. He would sweep into office and fix things. And part of how he would fix things is uh, make nice with Beijing. And Beijing would, you know, pump a bunch of resources into Taiwan because they liked Han and Taiwanese would get rich then. It was a very simple kind of campaign strategy and it looked like it might have worked um, a year before the election. And then Hong Kong happened and he really struggled to respond uh, in a way that didn't sound just ridiculous in, in, uh, in condemning the crackdown in Hong Kong and trying to support the protesters. And instead he, he kind of pretended he didn't know that it was happening. He referred to the protests as a parade, you know, or I don't know anything about that. Uh, and then it, it took a long time for him to find his footing. And meanwhile, the DPP, that's like home field advantage for the DPP when they're talking about democracy and military crackdowns and authoritarianism versus uh, democratic advocates. You know, the DPP was uh, loved to talk about Hong Kong during the campaign. And it, it really did, I think, sway, especially the younger generation to turn out for Tsai Ing-wen. So I, I don't know that it was decisive, but it certainly had a significant impact on the final outcome. Great, thank you. I have a question from um, Philip O'Reilly who asks, and, and I apologize because I, I have some acronyms in here that I don't know, so please bear with me. So what are the chances of the KMT being reelected in 2024 and making an agreement to unify with China under some terms acceptable to both sides? Does the Ma Ying Zhao approach to cross-strait relations still hold any appeal? Yeah, that's a, a, an excellent question. So this is basically talking about the kind of trajectory in, in domestic politics and, and party competition. So um, the KMT right now is in the opposition. They got trounced in 2020, in part because of the Hong Kong issue and the, the, the flaws in their own candidate. Um, they um, are facing kind of a, an existential crisis right now. They're not very popular among anyone under 40. <laughs> Uh, and as their base is aging out of politics, um, they're, uh, it's not clear how they have a long-term, whether they have a real long-term future in Taiwan or not. Uh, the other problem that they face is they've always had a reputation, a, a brand as being the, the more China-friendly party, or at least the party that could work pragmatically with Beijing. Whereas the DPP, you vote for the DPP, you're sticking it to Beijing, but you also know that Beijing is not gonna like that, that president, whoever she or he is. Um, and uh, for a while that meant that voters who wanted better cross-strait relations um, could throw their lot in with the KMT and, and get that. Um, now uh, the, the KMT's brand is such that uh, a significant share of the electorate views them as uh, potentially selling out Taiwan if they get back into power. So they, the, the threat of them trying to strike some kind of peace agreement or some kind of deal that leads to eventual unification. Uh, I don't think those are, are realistic concerns, but a, a significant share of the population what, would never vote for the KMT because they see that as a threat to Taiwan's uh, sovereignty and security and de facto independence. Um, so that's the background. Let me say just briefly on 2024. I don't think the KMT is is hopeless. I think they um, they have to nominate the right candidate. I think they're an underdog in the 2024 election. But um, with the right right candidate, somebody who's popular, um, they 
quite well could win in 2024. Um, but that candidate has to distance himself a little bit from the Ma Yingzhou era and convince voters then that he or she is not going to pursue um, a, a kind of uneven deal with Beijing that, that puts Taiwan at an even greater disadvantage than it's at. So it's a, it's a hard challenge for any KMT candidate, uh, to, a hard appeal for them to make. Thank you. That, 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 that was a great question. And, and I think we all we learned a lot from the answer. Um, we have a question from James Stillman, who's asking, you know, zooming out a little bit and, and with your understanding of the wider region. So, it, you know, the, the, the question has to do with China's location and being hemmed in on the Pacific by Taiwan and the rest of the first island chain. And James asks, is China pushing democratic separate Setbacks, or are they using the democratic setbacks in Burma and Thailand in hopes of securing indirect outlets to the Indian Ocean? So, is there any strategic advantage there for the for the setbacks in Burma and Thailand for China? Hmm. Um. Yeah, I guess I, you know this is a little bit outside my area, but. Um, I, I mean, China has sought access to the Indian Ocean through Pakistan. So they've, they've signed a, an agreement as part of the Belt and Road Initiative to develop a transportation corridor that would go from Xinjiang in Western China into Pakistan and down to the port of Gwadar. Um, uh, developing connections in Burma and Thailand, I think are consistent with China's Belt and Road strategy to try to integrate the infrastructure of the entire region a, a bit better and to center it on China um, so that countries are bound a bit more tightly to, uh, to China as the, the hub of this hub and spoke system. Um, I think the bigger question is whether uh, the, the political setbacks in Thailand and Burma make it easier for China to execute a Belt and Road strategy that then um, fosters or, or encourages the development of, of Chinese-led infrastructure projects or whether it makes it harder. Um, and it's, uh, in Thailand, it probably makes it easier. In, in Burma, and I'm, I'm in no way, shape or form an expert on either of these countries, but in Burma, it's not clear to me that the, the, the military is, um, in fact, I think the military is less uh, friendly to China than the um, Aung San Suu Kyi's party the, there. So it's not obvious to me the coup will actually make things uh, better, will make the Burma more receptive to Chinese uh, invitations to, to cut deals. I've, I, I've heard, I've heard similar things as well. So that's, that, that's good to know. Um, thank you for, for taking for, for taking that question yeah, and doing yeah. so, such a great job with it. Um, we're, we're almost at time. So one final question for you, as, as you're looking, you know, as, you, as you're watching domestic politics in Taiwan, as you're watching developments in the US-China relationship, what are some key markers that, that you would be looking for to understand what direction things are going in so, so that the rest of us can pay close attention to the news and get a sense of where things are going? Yeah, um, I mean, one obvious one, I think that the single biggest priority for Tsai Ing-wen over the next three or four years is a, well, three years, she's got three years left, is a, a bilateral trade investment, a bilateral trade agreement with the United States. I think if the US is receptive to that and there are serious conversations that they enter into, that's a good sign for US, a broader support uh, for Taiwan and, and a willingness to push back against Beijing, not just in the military domain, but also in, in the economic and diplomatic domains. Um, so I would keep an eye on that. Um, there is going to be a, a local elections, um, comprehensive local elections in the fall of 2022 in Taiwan. Uh, the KMT, believe it or not, actually controls a majority of the local uh, mayors and, and county executives in Taiwan. They did very, very well in 2018. And so there's an open question about the KMT's future that we will partially answer in the 2022 elections. You know, can they hold on there? Can they even increase their performance or improve their importance over 2018? Um, or the, are they, they doomed to bleed votes uh, based on their cross-strait policy and the, the problem with younger Taiwanese. Um, so I'd keep an eye on that as well. Um, and then 
Um, a third issue actually is the KMT has raised some strident objections to the pork decision that Tsai Ing-wen made. And they've managed to, uh, I don't know if it's formally qualified yet, but they've circulated a petition to hold a referendum on that issue. Uh, the pork issue, the pork decision is very unpopular. So the KMT's referendum will probably pass if it does go to the voters. Uh, and that would be a significant setback for Tsai Ing-wen and the DPP, and it could th then derail conversations about the bilateral trade agreement. Um, so there's some potential for uh, kind of mischief making in domestic politics that uh, really has a negative impact on Taiwan's long-term um, strategic interests in the region. Um, similar issue has to do with imports from the prefectures around Fukushima in Japan. Uh, Taiwan has had a ban on agricultural projects, products from those prefectures for a while. That's a huge problem for Japan right now. And so Taiwan needs to lift those restrictions for Japan to even consider conversations about an economic agreement with Taiwan. Japan is the biggest economy in the CPTPP as well. Um, and so there's going to be pressure on Tsai, I think, to lift those restrictions. And in turn, the referendum process might derail that as well. And so there's there's kind of a, an unfortunate, um, there's unfortunate cross currents within Taiwanese domestic politics that threaten to undercut a broader initiative to strengthen Taiwan's economic relations in the region. That's fascinating. Well, all good things to keep an eye on. So, Karis, thank you so much for, for joining us tonight. And thank you, everyone. Really phenomenal questions. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Network 2020's audio edition of this virtual briefing. Click on the link in the description below to view all of our upcoming events and find out how you can become a member and gain access to our members-only benefits.